0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We're so glad you've decided to join us this morning. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
1: So let's get started with our first link. First link. link. I'm going to start us off hot and heavy with an article from The Guardian reporting from Australia. Where horrific swarms of spiders have been fleeing into homes and up legs to escape floods. Hooray! Oh. Okay, it just got worse with every phrase. <laughs> I was like holding in the shutter, waiting, like going, "Now it's over." No, now it's over. Oh my oh, god! Oh yeah. <laughs> if if you have arachnophobia, you may want to skip ahead a few minutes, in part because it has both pictures and. Video. I did not click on the video. My husband has already seen it. So I figured that our bases are covered with one person in the household being aware of the kind of (laughs) horrific thing that can happen here. But yeah, if you're planning on going to Australia, try to avoid the floody season because apparently in New South Wales, they've been pounded by rain as they've been bracing for the worst flooding in like 50 years. Wow. But as the article describes, a carpet of brown greeted Matt Lovenfoss as he pulled up (gasps) to his home on Monday morning, quote, So I went out to have a look and it was millions of spiders, unquote. (laughs) Oh my God. A similar phenomenon happened when a couple visited the Penrith Weir in Western Sydney, quote, spiders covered the entire length of the railing that's not underwater. There were also skinks, ants, basically every insect, crickets, all just trying to get away from the floodwaters. My husband videoed it because I was not going close to it while he was standing (laughs) still, he had spiders climbing up his legs. Oh. A skink used him as a pole to get away from the water. <laughs> wow. You know
0: what this uh. is like? This is like when you put purel on your hands, it's like the fastest way to find out you have a little cut. Having spider carpeting all up your house walls is a really great way to find out that you have a crack in your walls
1: somewhere. Oh, (laughs) yeah. And it's not that there are more spiders than there would be usually. You're just seeing more of them, right? Because a lot of them are ground-dwelling spiders that are just trying to survive. And so Dr. Lizzie Lowe, an arachnologist at the independent research company Caesar Australia, urged people who came into contact with spiders to try and exercise some empathy, even if it's spooky, right? Because the spiders will be doing their best to disperse as soon as the floodwaters went down. She doesn't Um, know that. (laughs) She's describing all sorts of like, hey, man, we're just here for a second. Just let us crash on
0: your couch. You don't know. They could absolutely be thinking, hey, that's a nice house and it looks pretty floodproof. I think we're going to take it.
1: <laughs> like that, yeah. b- that being said, you know, spiders are a critical part of the ecosystem. Yeah, They're yeah. wonderful insect hunters. So, if you get rid of spiders, you're going to be plagued by insects. And you know, the insects in Australia are Just some as whole bad. other business. Yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, one of her quotes was We should be worrying about saving the spiders as much as we're worried about saving the koalas. Even though one is really fluffy and photogenic, the other mm-hmm. one still plays a really valuable part. So some people are hoping that the rain can end the apparently ongoing mouse plague that is also affecting (laughs) north-south Wales. Um, This was another article that I elected not to read, but it's intertwined. There are mouse plagues that are decimating, you know, vegetation and agriculture. A lot of things happening in Australia right now. (laughs) But, you know, rain would make conditions less favorable for mice, but whether this is the precursor to the end of the mouse plague is uncertain. Some farmers have talked about mice disappearing virtually overnight because they will get to such high numbers, they become quite stressed. They start to run out of food, which facilitates the spread of disease, and then they start eating the sick ones. They turn on the babies, and then it's all over. It's quite a grisly story. That's super uncivilized. Like, yeah, I gotta say, you know, for all of the crap that Texas takes about our animals and management for wildlife. Yeah, Australia, man, uh, my heart goes out to you because that's a lot y'all are going through right now. Yeah, it's really kind of sad when one
0: ongoing plague is being stopped by the rain, which is bringing a second (laughs) ongoing plague. Like there's no end to it.
1: Well, hopefully, but only time can tell. Yeah. (laughs) If you're from Australia, let us know. Send us a comment. Um, Let us know how you're faring. Please do not send any video.
0: Yeah, no pictures. I don't want to see it. (laughs) Next link next link all right well if there's one thing everybody loves it's a story that gives us hope for the youth yeah sure and smithsonian mag has delivered with a profile on one of this year's finalists in the regeneron science talent search which is apparently the country's oldest and most prestigious science and math competition for high school seniors it's science nice. fairs, basically yeah yeah And let me just say right out of the gate, this girl, Dazia Taylor, and every one of the other kids mentioned in this article make me feel completely ashamed. (laughs) Like, I did pretty well in high school, but I was still very much focused on doing what I wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. all of the finalists in this competition are clearly dedicated to helping others through science, which is amazing. (laughs) It's fantastic. So, obviously, it goes without saying that to get to this level, you're doing a little more than a baking soda volcano, right? Right. A lot of these kids actually go on to file patents for what are genuine scientific breakthroughs. Whoa. And Dazia Taylor has, in fact, on that as well. So it all started for her when she read an article about a revolutionary new kind of surgical sutures, which are coated with a conductive material that can sense infection by measuring changes in electrical resistance and then wirelessly send that information to your doctor's smartphone. Whoa. Yeah. And so like that in itself is very cool. I was like, where was the damn interesting article about those things? But yeah. what Dazia realized was that this highly technological solution wasn't actually very helpful in parts of the world where surgical infection is a problem worth solving. Because the people who live in those developing countries don't generally have smartphones. Mm. A BBC survey published in 2016 found, for example, that in Sierra Leone, only 53 percent of the population has a mobile phone. And of Mm. those, about 75 percent are just basic flip phones. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says that in low and middle income countries, an average of 11 percent of surgical wounds get infected. And the number goes as high as 20 percent for (gasps) C-sections in particular.
1: Oh, man.
0: Yeah. So it makes sense. I mean, like, yeah, we have this big problem and you guys have gone all tech bro on it and it doesn't do us any good because we don't have smartphones to use these cool sutures that you've invented. Yeah. So Dazia decided she wanted to take this idea of sutures that can detect infection, but create a low tech version of it that could be replicated in the places where it was actually needed. So the mm-hmm. high-tech sutures focused on the conductivity of infected skin, but Dazia realized that infected skin also goes through dramatic changes in its pH level. Healthy mm. human skin is normally fairly acidic, with a pH of around 5, but infected skin turns alkaline and can go all the way up to 9. Oh! Yeah. So it seems like a pretty logical thing. She started researching natural substances that would change color within that range. Because, again, they don't have a bunch of pH test strips down in the the rural areas that you're trying to help. Right. And she stumbled upon beet juice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So at a pH of 5, beet juice is bright red. But by the time you get up to 9, it's a very dark purplish gray. And she basically showed in her science fair project that sutures dyed with beet juice will change color after just five minutes against infected skin. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which is a massive cool thing. Like it makes your sutures look really gross because they're like (laughs) blood red, but they change color almost immediately if you get an infection. That's incredible. Unfortunately, there are some drawbacks to her invention, which is probably why she didn't actually win the competition. One of the issues is that standard suture thread is very plasticky and couldn't Mm. absorb the beet juice in her experiments. The kind of Mm -hmm. sutures that she used for her demonstration, which are like a cotton poly blend, they're Mm -hmm. not unheard of in the medical field, but they have lots of nooks and crannies in the fiber that bacteria can get into. So they're kind Mm. of considered an infection risk all on their own. Right. Another problem is that Dazia's sutures can only detect infection at the surface of the wound. And plenty Mm -hmm. of surgeries, including C-sections, involve internal stitches as well as Mm -hmm. outer stitches on the skin. And as the director of the Center for Global Surgery pointed out, if the infection oozes through the skin, it's already reached a more advanced stage than you want. Right. Dazia did actually test whether the beet juice itself might have antibacterial properties, but unfortunately her data showed pretty conclusively that it does not. Oh, okay. But her work is ongoing, and she's recently connected with a microbiologist at the University of Iowa. So she's hoping with further research, she can overcome these problems and come up with something that really will be a final solution for this. And, you know, she's 17 freaking years old, so she's got <laughs>
1: time. Like, yeah. I mean, to have accomplished that much already at this age, not only, you know, getting closer and trying different iterations, but also ruling stuff out, finding out what the weaknesses are, that's a huge amount of groundwork to build upon.
0: Well, and just fundamentally coming up with a new idea. Like, I was yeah. thinking as I was reading you this, like, what were my signs? science fair projects. And I I can only remember doing one actually kind of sciencey cool one. And it had to do with like figuring out the vitamin C level in different liquids. And I felt very cool because I like we bought test tubes and I was dripping different, you know, amounts of chemicals (laughs) into things. But fundamentally, I was still just demonstrating a scientific fact we already knew. Like, right. I think my mom got the idea out of some magazine or something. I didn't even come up with it. <laughs> and that that's the sort of thing that you expect to see in kids' science fairs. Is like, look, sure. i demonstrated this property. She came up with a totally new idea. Like, she researched
1: wow. dozens of
0: foods trying to find something that they could get in Africa that would change color with pH. I mean, she's, yeah, my hat's off to her. Yeah,
1: I mean, even if this isn't you know this could be some sort of like bear grills into the wild if you're you know up a creek or in the middle of nowhere and don't have access to much this information alone is still has value
0: that's right but don't pour the beet juice directly on the infection because as we've
1: shown (sighs) it's not antibacterial (laughs) oh no thank you (laughs) next link Next link. link. Well, some of us are starting to get vaccinated, at Mm -hmm. least here in the US. However, that being said, some people are still not vaccinated, and COVID is still a thing. Some cases are still going up. We still need to be somewhat vigilant. And Mm -hmm. if you need a little bit of a reminder about why you don't (laughs) want to catch COVID, from a couple of articles that kind of go together, SciTech Daily is reporting that some research evidence is showing a COVID link to hearing loss, tinnitus, and vertigo. Um, I remember reading a headline the other day about, I think it was the owner of the Texas Roadhouse steak restaurants, Uh who allegedly committed suicide because after getting in infected with COVID, his tinnitus was essentially driving him crazy. So they found 56 studies that identified an association between COVID-19 and auditory and vestibular problems. However, there's a big caveat here. Uh, They did publish their findings in the International Journal of Audiology, if you really want to dive into it, but the team who followed up the review carried out a year ago, described the quality of studies as fair. And this is because their data primarily used self-reported questionnaires Mm -hmm. or medical records to obtain COVID-related symptoms rather than more scientifically reliable hearing tests. So Mm -hmm. this is very early. We still need to do some carefully conducted clinical and diagnostic study to understand long-term effects of COVID on the auditory system. But this is nothing new in terms of viruses causing hearing loss. So measles, mumps, and meningitis can cause hearing loss. Another reason to make sure to stay up on the rest of your vaccinations. But it's not just the hearing sense. It's also the smell sense. So The Atlantic has a longer article titled, You Recovered from COVID-19. Now your coffee smells like sewage. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) So this article goes into Ruby Martinez, who her senses of smell and taste have started to come back, but in really weird ways. So, for two weeks, all she could smell was phantom smoke. Hmm. And then later, she was able to smell her boyfriend's cologne, but it had this really sickening chemical odor. Hmm. And then the hand soap where she worked, which used to smell generically fruity but now smells exactly and eerily like a Burger King Whopper. She <laughs> apparently used to love Whoppers, but now can't stand the smell of the soap yeah. because she's like, she's quoted as saying, I know, what the heck? Why can't it be something good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing comes out smelling like gardenias by
0: magic. Why? Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> Burger exactly. King Whopper
0: is not the odor you want on your hands today.
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. And apparently some supposed cures for smell loss, like eating a charred orange or poking your forehead, while getting flicked in the back of the head. (laughs) Just to name a couple of examples that have gone viral on TikTok, and we'd like to remind you TikTok is not (laughs) a scientific (laughs) journal. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that sounds very much like a sibling was just like, no, no, this will fix it. Let me poke you in the back
1: of the head for an hour. I promise it'll get better. It's the why are you hitting yourself with a somewhat suspicious scientific (laughs) application. But there is something that is scientifically proven as an intervention for this kind of smell loss, and it's called smell training. Hmm. It really started in 2009. Thomas Hummel, an ear, nose, and throat doctor at the University of Dresden, began asking 40 people with anosmia to smell four essential oils. They used rose, lemon, eucalyptus, and clove, and they would have them do this twice a day for 10 seconds each. And after 12 weeks, the volunteers who adhered to the smell training regained some of their smell, but those in a control group did not. Hmm. But Not everyone who did the smell training improved, and those who did improve didn't necessarily fully recover. So it's not like a wonder drug, but it does help to increase function faster. So it's less like a cure than it is like physical therapy for the nose. Right. So since then, they've been testing variations of the smell training protocol. They're using more complex scents Mm. and then adding a picture of an object with the appropriate scent. Unfortunately, none of these variations have improved much on the original. So a lot of people who do encounter smell training do so through a charity in the UK that has the most delightful name. It's called Absent. (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine how that's spelled. Yes, yes. Um, The founder, Chrissy Kelly, lost her sense of smell for the first time after a viral infection in 2012. And when her doctor suggested smell training, she had very little useful information, studies that existed had been written for other scientists, not patients. Mm. So she began writing down her own tips, like putting drops of an essential oil in a small jar so the scent can bloom, kind of like wine in a wine glass. Mm. And she had started a Facebook group where people could connect. Obviously, when COVID began, membership in the group took off. She could almost track the global spread of COVID based on the locations of new members. And so eventually, she created another group specifically for COVID patients, which now has about 25,000 members. It goes on a little bit more in terms of like, why is it that we're smelling something that's just so disgusting after we've lost our sense of smell? It might be because of the way that infection of support cells in the olfactory systems work. Apparently, humans only have 400 distinct smell receptors. But we're able to distinguish around 1 trillion different odors. And that's because a single molecule can bind to multiple smell receptors. And one recognizable scent can be made up of hundreds of different molecules that together activate a unique combination of receptors. So if some receptors are missing or miswired, the brain might get a scrambled signal that results in parosmia. And so one of the hypotheses here is that the brain is interpreting unfamiliar scrambled signals as danger, right? Yes. Why should something you've never smelled before be pleasant? Because in our evolutionary history, smells like smoke or rot are usually a warning sign. Yeah.
0: So it's basically telling you, I
1: don't know what this is, but let's assume it's bad. Exactly. Danger, danger, unknown, get Mm -hmm. away. But When you think about babies, they don't turn their heads away from foul odors, right? Their diapers do not disgust them. Like you might be changing a diaper and you as the adult are like, but the baby's like, I'm having a wonderful time. Yeah, like whatever. (laughs) So the aversion to certain smells might be learned over a lifetime But once we've learned it, the reaction is Mm -hmm. super, super strong. So if you're curious to learn more, it's a really good in-depth article, but let it serve as a warning to approach the reopening of the world once you're vaccinated with a grain of salt, shall we say. Yeah, well, and
0: there's more things that can happen between it killed me or it didn't kill me. Like There are other (laughs) side effects you may not appreciate if you get infected. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, well, this article is called Ancient Rocks Reveal When Earth's Plate Tectonics Began. And the study itself is pretty cool, and we'll get into that. But the most fascinating aspect of this article to me is that it goes into just how important plate tectonics are to the functioning of our planet. Because I had no idea. I thought plate tectonics was just kind of this inconvenient situation that causes earthquakes. But (laughs) actually, a lot of scientists now think that without plate tectonics, we wouldn't have life on Earth at all. Whoa, bold claim. So when a planet is the right size and distance from its star to sustain life, astronomers call that the Goldilocks zone, right? But one of the things they don't talk about as much is that the Goldilocks zone moves as the star goes through its own life cycle. Stars get bigger huh. and hotter as they age, so a planet that's in the Goldilocks zone today generally won't be there a billion years from now. Right. And yet, somehow, Earth has maintained a Goldilocks climate for at least 3.5 billion years.
1: Hmm. So
0: one of the main reasons we've been able to achieve this is because of the carbon dioxide cycle. CO2 is a greenhouse gas, meaning it insulates the Earth and traps heat in. And obviously, when humans go and dump a bunch of extra CO2 into the atmosphere, it messes up this balance. But generally, what's supposed to happen is that there are natural chemical processes that add CO2 to the air, including the oxidizing of certain minerals, and then other processes that remove CO2, such as the formation of limestone with silicate minerals. And when the climate warms, it makes these silicate reactions more efficient, which removes more of our insulation material faster and basically thins out our winter jacket. And then when it cools, the removal of CO2 becomes less efficient and more of it builds up to keep us warm. Okay. And this sort of compensatory back and forth is part of what has kept Earth's temperature stable through these long fluctuations that go back and forth about every 100,000 years. But in order to keep the chemical reactions going, you need a steady supply of fresh silicate minerals for the air to react with. And these mm. are largely found on the exposed sides of mountains, where two plates collide and push the underground supply of minerals upward and outward.
1: Ah, like tilling the earth, but in a sort of DIY yeah, a kind a of way. in a really slow way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the
0: formation of mountains is also what brings a steady supply of phosphorus to the surface, which is critical for fertilizing life. What's more, the circulation of liquid mantle under our crust is what causes Earth's magnetic field, which is what protects our atmosphere from being eroded away by solar storms. And all of this combined makes a lot of scientists think that without plate tectonics, you could get life, but it wouldn't last very long because it would use up all its resources on the surface relatively quickly and have no way to tap into all that that's stored underneath. Mm. So to prove this theory it's pretty critical for us to know when the cycle of moving surface plates began. Because if it was only, say, a billion years ago, then obviously life must have found another way to get going. But Mm -hmm. now geochemists Jonas Tush and Karsten Munker say they've figured it out. They've pinpointed the time in our history when plate tectonics began. So Tunch and Munker focused on the isotope tungsten 182, which we know was formed from the radioactive decay of hafnium 182 within 60 million years of the solar system's formation. So basically, tungsten 182 should be relatively abundant in rocks from very early in Earth's history. But after plate tectonics started, the churning of the mantle would have mixed up tungsten 182 with the other four isotopes of tungsten, creating rocks with uniformly low values of tungsten 182, according to them. (laughs) That's what they went looking for. (laughs) And it took them five years, but eventually they gathered enough samples of prehistoric rocks from all over the world of different ages to show a really clear pattern. Lots of tungsten 182 up to 3.3 billion years ago, then a period of transition for about 200 million years, then consistently low modern levels of tungsten 182 from about 3.1 billion years onward. And the interesting thing to match up with that is that there was definitely life on Earth prior to 3.3 billion years ago. But Mm -hmm. that window when plate tectonics began lines up perfectly with this explosive period where bacterial diversity went through the roof, photosynthesis began, the atmosphere started to become oxygenated, all of which made more complex forms of life possible. So they Mm -hmm. were super thrilled with the results. They were like, this is exactly what we were hoping to find. This proves, you know, there was life, but plate tectonics is what really kicked us into high gear. And then actually, interestingly, after that, scientists say there was a period of stalling which they called the Boring Billion, where the (laughs) continent got jammed into the supercontinent Nuna Rodinia, and there wasn't a whole lot of tectonic activity for a while because they were all just sort of stuck in this traffic jam as one supercontinent. Mm -hmm. And Ming Tang of Peking University argues that during this time, the mountains eroded away completely. The surface of Earth was flat. The oxygen levels dropped. And it wasn't until the supercontinent broke apart and movement resumed that we then see the second great explosion of both oxygen and complex life in the fossil record. Oh, man. So it all lines up and it's like, okay, well, I guess we'll have to put up with a few earthquakes because clearly (laughs) this is super important that, you know, the ground is cycling underneath us like this, albeit incredibly slowly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always knew that, you know, volcanic eruptions while destructive can be incredibly helpful for not only creating landmass, but enriching it because of right. all of those nutrients and minerals that are then brought to the surface and mixed with the soil.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely critical, apparently. And unfortunately, all of this points to no life on Mars, either now or in the past, because Mars is too small to generate the interior pressure that would be needed for plate tectonics. Oh, so, man. Yeah, they're basically like, never happened, never gonna happen. Well,
1: I but- mean... <laughs> Can humans in our infinite hubris synthesize or create artificial plate tectonics? Yeah, put I mean, some sort
0: of like nuclear bomb into the core I of mean, the planet and crack it up a little it bit. It seems like a
1: real, you know, human kind of experiment to conduct, especially right. if we've got Elon Musk with his sight set on it.
0: <laughs> well, and yeah, it basically if we want to seed it with an atmosphere on any large scale, it just means we have to do a lot of mining. So like if we set up our own minds that are constantly bringing the necessary minerals up to the surface to keep a carbon dioxide cycle going, we could in theory do that. I mean, it's pretty fair to say that life on Mars is going to be inhospitable for a long time. You know, we're going to be in our little domes with our little climate controlled areas (laughs) long, long before we ever get anything like a full planet atmosphere going. But, you know, it's an important thing to keep in mind. That at some point, we're gonna need to break up the surface of the planet and start moving them around a
1: little bit. That is, if we don't just suck it dry of all of its resources that we find useful here on Earth first. Yeah, that's probably gonna happen. (laughs) 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 Next link.
0: Next Next link. link.
1: All right, well, you know, climate science. Let's stay in that vein for a little bit. The Guardian has a very long but really interesting article that opens with this quote Our biggest challenge. Lack of imagination. <laughs> the scientists turning the desert green. And this really oh. grabbed my attention mostly because I've been rereading the Dune series in ah. anticipation of the new iteration of the movie coming oh, out sometime yeah, this yeah. year. And what a lot of people who love Dune don't realize is that the full sequels really kind of start to turn the first novel on its head. Like the first one's about this kid who is part of the aristocracy and he's kind of like a supermensch. And then he basically comes on to this desert planet with promises to turn it green. Spoiler alert, he does, but it creates a lot of problems for, you know, cultures Hmm. that have acclimated to a desert planet and what happens from a socioeconomic and cultural standpoint when a massive change like that happens. So anyway, I'm not saying that this is going to be like Dune, but it definitely reminded me of it. So previously in China, scientists have already turned vast swaths of arid land into a lush oasis. And now a team of maverick engineers want to do the same to the Sinai Peninsula, which is a small triangle of land that connects Egypt to Asia. They are thinking that within a couple of decades, they could transform this region from a hot, dry, barren desert into a green haven teeming with life, forests, wetlands, farming land, wild flora, and fauna. I mean, they can say that, but how? (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, I'm
0: going to do it too. Uh, Just trust
1: me. Like, what? (laughs) How do they do it? So this guy was, uh, his name is... Tease Vanderhoven, and he has spent the past decade in the industry working on projects across the world, including the artificial islands of Dubai. And that was a creation mm. that involved large-scale dredging and land reclamation. Mm -hmm. By his own admission, he got sucked into the expat lifestyle there, he admits, drinking, eating, partying, quote, I lost a little bit of my soul. And so when he returned to the Netherlands in 2008, he started to re-examine his own profession. And what he could see is that the dredging industry had so much potential, they were just kind of misusing it. And so while working for a Belgian company, he devised a new method of dredging that was both more eco-friendly and more efficient. He used inexpensive sensors to model maritime conditions in real time, like waves and currents Hmm. and tides. So he could determine more precisely when and where it was safe to work. And so he trialed the system. He won over some skeptical colleagues by living on the vessel with them, cooking meals. (laughs) And his technique saved a small fortune. So later, he was contacted by an Egyptian representative who was asked by the Egyptian government to look into restoring Lake Bardawil, which is a lagoon on the north coast of the Sinai. The lake used to be 20 to 40 meters deep. But today is just a few meters deep. And so dredging the lake and cutting channels to allow more water in from the Mediterranean would make it deeper, cooler and less salty, all of which would boost fish stocks. But Mm. Vanderhoeven did not want to stop there. Um, He began looking at the Sinai Peninsula in greater detail. He was looking at the history, weather patterns, geology tides, even religious texts. And what he found was there is evidence that the Sinai once was green. And Hmm. even as recently as 4,500 to 8,000 years ago, he found cave paintings that depict trees and plants. Satellite images reveal a network of rivers flowing from the mountains into the south towards the Mediterranean. And what they're thinking turned the Sinai into a desert was most likely human activity because wherever humans settle, we like to chop down trees, we clear land. This loss of vegetation affects the land's ability to retain moisture and then Mm. grazing animals trample and consume plants when they try to grow back. The soil will lose structure, get washed away, which is why there's so much silt in Lake Bardawil. So if one were to restore the Sinai, this vast reserve of nutrient-rich silt material was exactly what would be needed, right? So they looked to a Chinese-American ecologist named John Liu, who has a background, interestingly, in broadcasting. Um, apparently, he was brought on to film a documentary. It was called Green Gold, if you're curious in watching it. And it chronicles the story of the Loess Plateau, which is an area of northern China, which was a lot like the Sinai, right? It's dry, barren, heavily eroded. Mm-hmm. And the transformation has been astonishing. I mean, enough to make a documentary about. Yeah. Within 20 years, the deserts of the lowest plateau became green valleys and productive farmland. Hmm. And so when Vanderhoven saw this, he watched it 35 times in a row and he was like, this is what we need to do. Talk about obsessive. like Seriously obsessive. I mean, he even went to the guy that was the documentarian, but they essentially reached the same conclusion. If you restore the ecosystem by making a wetter landscape, The rains come back. Hmm. So he came up with this kind of pithy maxim, which is water begets water. Soil is the womb. Vegetation is the midwife. (laughs) (laughs) And so when we're talking about the Sinai, this is about restarting that water begets water feedback loop, Mm -hmm. right? So they want to restore Lake Bardawil, And then the second phase is to expand and restore the wetlands around it so as to evaporate more moisture and to increase biodiversity. And the Sinai coast is already a major global crossing point for migratory birds. So, the restored wetlands could bring more of them in, which would be more fertility and new plant species. Mm-hmm. But then there's also another challenge, which is fresh water. And so, they go into like different kinds of things, including an innovation called the Eco Machine, which is a low tech installation that consists of clear sided water barrels that are covered by a greenhouse. Water flows from one barrel to the next, and each barrel contains a mini ecosystem. You've got algae, bacteria, fungi, worms, insects, and as the water flows, it becomes cleaner and cleaner. Some water will evaporate from the barrels and will condense on the inside skin of the greenhouse, which is then collected by a system of gutters. And even on a cold day in the Netherlands, where they've got one of these set up, there's a constant trickle into a container on the ground. However, in the heat of the Sinai, this cycle would run a lot faster, right? The water feeding the eco-machine would be salt water, but the water that can denses inside would be fresh water, which could then be used to irrigate plants. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at every single piece of this and taking into account these types of things. But it's almost guaranteed going back to my dune comparison, you're going to have some side effects that you're not even yeah. aware of that are going to be there, especially because humans are involved, right?
0: Yeah, no, you put them and they, they screw up everything.
1: <laughs> they screw up everything or they decide, oh, this is going to be mine now. And you get people fighting for right. resources that you've just created. So yeah. right now, re-greening the Sinai is little more than a myth but it is something that people are pushing hard towards so uh you know be prepared this could be happening yeah give it a shot you never know (laughs) what could possibly go wrong let's find out (laughs) next link next Next link link.
0: well win davis at npr would like us to know that asteroid apophis not a risk to earth for at least a hundred years
1: Woo, we can put that one off and kick the can down the road for at least a generation or two. Exactly. So asteroid
0: 99942 Apophis was first discovered in June of 2004, which is relatively recently. Yeah. At which point it was immediately put on the list of the most hazardous asteroids that could impact Earth sooner rather than later. (sighs) It's 1,100 feet wide, which is about three and a half football fields and it weighs more than 20 million tons, Oh, they estimate that a direct hit would kill around 10 million people instantly, and that's not even counting the environmental impacts that would definitely result afterwards. Oof. David Farnoccia of NASA's Center for Near-Earth Object Studies said, when I started working with asteroids after college, Apophis was the poster child for hazardous asteroids. The other thing that makes Apophis so dangerous is that its orbit around the solar system is relatively short, After its discovery in 2004, which happened because of a close swing, that was where they saw it, astronomers predicted that it would be back again in 2029 and then again in 2036. As we got more precise information about its orbit, both of these visits were ruled out for impact several years ago. But there is an upcoming visit in 2068 that was still very much on the table. So astronomers have been watching it very closely to find out if we need to do some sort of, you know, Bruce Willis, get on it and dump a nuke down to its center to get rid of it. (laughs) None of that actually works. Whatever they did would not be that. But unfortunately, they don't have to now because they say they have enough data to confirm that Apophis definitely won't hit us in 2068. Uh, It actually just swung by again this past year. This time it was a safe 10.6 million miles away. And they were able to use more advanced radar than they've had in the past to pinpoint its position as it came close to us to within just 150 meters, which is insanely precise Uh, for outer space. It was 10.6 million miles away. And we were like, it's exactly here within 150 meters. Dang. They're also hoping that the data can reveal more about its shape and axis of spin, which would allow for more precise predictions in the future. Because that's the problem is this thing's not spherical following an exact path. We have an idea of where it's going, but there's always a certain amount of chaotic movement to it that's going to be hard to predict. Oh, yeah. Ironically, the best time to get that data is when it does have a near miss, and the (laughs) 2029 flyby is expected to come within 20,000 miles of us, which is closer than the moon and even as close as some satellites we've put up there. But they say it's definitely not coming any closer. They've ruled that one out. There is no chance it's going to hit us in 2029. And now they've ruled out 2068 as well. But Farnochi is very excited to see what else we can learn when it does come so close in 2029. And for now, at least, he says we are definitely safe for the next 100 years. After that, it's anyone's guess. And I figured (laughs) I'll be dead by then. So, you know, let the kids deal with it.
1: Right. And uh, who knows what other competing apocalyptic anxieties are going to be top of mind at that time either. You know, that's (laughs) true. It's it's very optimistic to think we're even going to make it that long.
0: So, you know. All right, well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include is there such thing as a maximum temperature, bioplastic made from wood powder entirely degrades in three months, and a remnant of a protoplanet may be hiding inside Earth. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our show and want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. You can also always leave us a review. They're more helpful than you think. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.